0: This evening we're continuing our overview of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth and here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 we find Paul he's focusing his attention on those who were questioning his apostolic authority remember it was in the beginning of this letter where we discovered that there were some critics there at the church in Corinth who were attempting to restructure the leadership hierarchy of the Christian community they were in. As a result, uh, some of the saints were insisting that those who had been discipled by Apollos ought to be leading the church, while others believed that uh, the leaders should be those who had been discipled by St. Peter. Then there were those who remained true to the leadership structure, which had been put in place by Paul uh, shortly after planting this church. Now, as we examine the content of this chapter, we'll begin to see how those divisive disciples who were attempting to restructure the leadership of their church, well, they appear to have been using two sinful tactics as a way to bring about the changes that they wanted to see. The first tactic was to call Paul's authority as an apostle into question. You see, they probably thought that if they could discredit Paul's apostolic authority, then they could also dismantle the leadership structure that he had established. The second sinful tactic was to simply cut off all financial support from those who had been raised up to lead the church there in Corinth. And in this way, those divisive disciples seem to have been manipulating their full-time ministers by withholding financial offerings. Well, with that being the case, we find Paul addressing those who were employing these two sinful tactics as a way of manipulating their church and as we make our way through our text tonight it's my hope that we'll all begin to realize that those who are attempting to manipulate the leadership structure of the church in these sinful sort of ways well they're not only failing to trust in the lord's ability to raise up the right leaders for the church but they're also failing to recognize that probably their, their problem really isn't with the leaders of the church Their their problem instead is based on their inability to simply submit themselves to the Lord. Either the Lord is in charge of this church or he isn't. And if he is, then isn't he the one who is raising up the leaders that he sees fit to raise up? And if that's the case, then you can simply trust the Lord that he's doing the right work. In order to further explain what I mean by all this, let's begin our overview of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so if you would look with me, beginning at verse 1, here Paul asks, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, here in the opening verses of this chapter, we find Paul questioning those Christians there in Corinth who who were questioning his apostolic authority over them. He's saying, hey, you've got questions about my authority. I've got questions about your questions. The chances are there were those who were quick to remind everyone there in Corinth that Paul wasn't actually one of the 12 apostles, and the fact is he wasn't. With that being the case, they were calling his apostolic authority into questions probably by, by saying something simply like, uh, you know, Paul's not one of the twelve, therefore where does he get off calling himself an apostle? Now it's true that Paul wasn't one of the twelve apostles who had been a, a follower of Christ from the time of John's baptism until that day when he ascended into heaven because that was the criteria uh, for what it meant to be a, one of the twelve apostles. While he wasn't one of those 12, it's also true that the Lord was the one who had called Paul to become the apostle to the Gentiles. Therefore, those who were questioning his apostolic position, well, they were actually calling the, the, the Lord into question. They, they, they were questioning Paul's apostolic position, but they were simultaneously questioning the Lord's authority, because he's the one who called Paul into that position, Well, rather than engaging in the fallacy of special pleading by simply saying, well, God said I am, so I am. He didn't do that. No, instead, Paul took the time to present the proof of his apostolic position. And with this as our focus, let's look again at Paul's proof, which is found here in verse 1. Here again, he asks, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Now, Here in this verse, we find Paul reminding his readers about the day of his conversion by asking, have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? He's reminding his readers about his testimony and and the day when the risen Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And after placing his faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord then called him there in Damascus. And the Lord began to equip him to become the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, after reminding the Christians in Corinth about the calling that he received there in Damascus, Paul went on to agree with his critics in part. He agreed with them that his apostolic position was in fact limited and it wasn't equivalent to the 12. And yet at the same time, he also insisted that his sphere of apostolic authority most certainly extended to the Christians there in Corinth. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at verse 2, because there Paul declares If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Here in this verse, we find Paul referring to the Christians in Corinth as the seal of his apostleship. In this way, Paul was reminding them that the Lord had called him to plant the church there in Corinth. Therefore, their salvation was actually the evidence that the Lord had called Paul to become an apostle to the Gentile world. They were the seal of his apostleship. Well, then after justifying his apostolic authority over them, Paul went on to examine the arguments of those who were attempting to discredit him as the apostle to the Gentiles. And what this is our focus, look with me there beginning at verse three. Here Paul declares, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not, no, uh, have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a, a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Now, here in these verses, we find Paul continuing to defend his apostolic authority. And it's, it's worded a, a little weirdly. I'd like to kind of clean this up for you a little bit more. You see, Paul knew that there was this group of Christians there in Corinth who were attempting to discredit his ministry through the scrutiny of an unjustified examination. And so Paul directed the attention of these examiners to his defense, which can be clearly seen in the way that he was living his life. And in order to to better understand his defense, I should remind you here that his critics there in Corinth, they were the ones who were boasting about all of their liberties. We saw that uh, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. They were boasting in all of their liberties, and and so Paul informed them that, look, I, I too have the same liberties. He's letting them know here in verses 3 through 6 that he has the liberty to eat and drink whatever he wants. He has the liberty to, to marry a believing wife. And yet at the same time, Paul goes on to magnify his apostolic office by pointing out that he was, in fact, a mature leader who was choosing to abstain from those liberties. He was saying, I could do all these things. I, I could invest my life in, in, in pursuing all of these, these liberties, but I don't. I abstain from these things because of my apostolic position." Not only that, but Paul also reminded them about the way in which he had worked for a living as he planted the church there in Corinth. And while it's true that he had the right to take up a financial collection from the new believers there in Corinth, Paul and Barnabas refrained from that right, which is why there in verse 6 he says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? They were working for a living rather than taking up a, a financial collection from the Christian's that they, were, uh, that, that they were leading there in Corinth. The reason why was due to the fact that they were more interested in the spiritual growth of those new believers than they were with the financial compensations that they truly deserved. At the same time, though, Paul wanted them all to know that the church ought to be providing for the leaders who are called to full-time ministry. As a matter of fact, look with me beginning there at verse 7. Here Paul asks them, whoever goes to war at his own expense, Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Now, here in this verse, we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that it's actually their responsibility to financially support the leaders who were called to work in full-time ministry. And in order to prove his point, uh, Paul pointed them to three clear examples, uh, which could be seen in, in, in the everyday world. In order to prove his point, Paul pointed to these three examples. And the first example, well, it's the soldier who is being sent off to war. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense. And the answer is nobody. Without debate, those of us who enjoy the protection of the military, well, we should happily pay our taxes so that we can support the soldiers who are serving us in this way. And you know what? It's great when you see You know, uh, a person who has served and they're wearing, you know, some obvious sign of their service, it's great to say, hey, thank you. Thank you so much for your service. That's great. But what's even better is you pay your taxes. And and those taxes are used to then support those soldiers as they're sent to go and defend our freedoms. We shouldn't expect soldiers to just go and, 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 you know, uh, defend our country and, and, and fight our battles without some sort of compensation. That would be ridiculous. And it's in similar fashion that every Christian should be happy to financially support the leaders of their church who have been called to serve the Lord in full-time ministry. We shouldn't just expect people to just you know, dedicate their whole lives to serving the Lord in full-time ministry and not give them some way to survive as they do that ministry. The second example that Paul used was the farmer who has planted and harvested their crops. Clearly, every farmer is going to enjoy the fruits of their labor as they consume the foods that they've planted and harvested. It would be ridiculous to think that the farmer shouldn't do that. In similar fashion, the Christian leader uh, who has planted and harvested a a spiritual crop, well, shouldn't they also enjoy the fruits of their labor through financial compensation? The answer is yes, of course. The third example that Paul used was that of a shepherd who tends the flock. And we should expect that the shepherd is going to enjoy the milk that comes from their flock. I I can't imagine a shepherd uh, who's thirsty for some morning milk uh, saying, well, you know what, I I better not milk this this goat or or this cow. No, of course he's going to get some milk and refresh himself. And we should expect that that's going to be the case. And in the same way, we should also expect the spiritual shepherd, to enjoy and receive financial support from the spiritual flock that they're caring for. Well, after presenting these three examples there in verse 7, Paul goes on to present his audience with a biblically-based argument for the for the same truth. And with, this is our focus. Look with me there, beginning at verse 8. There Paul declares, Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who thrushes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul reminding his readers about something that Moses wrote back in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And according to the law, it was wrong to place a muzzle on an ox as it was threshing out the grain. That would be cruel. And so Paul here says, look, remember what the law says. Don't muzzle an ox as it threshes the grain. And then he asks, is God really that concerned about oxen? No, probably not. There's a deeper spiritual truth hidden in that verse. And Paul goes on to reveal the deeper meaning of that verse by helping his audience to understand that the Lord has actually called every Christian to financially provide for those who have been called to serve in full-time ministry. As a matter of fact, this is precisely the point that, goes on, that Paul goes on to make here in our text tonight. And with this as our focus, look with me there beginning at verse 11. Here Paul declares, If we have sown spiritual things for you, Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. And here in these verses, we find Paul helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that those who have been called to full-time ministry, well, they're spending their time sowing spiritual seed into the lives of those that they're leading, And while many unbelievers balk at the idea of giving money to the leaders of a church, the same people have no problem paying the price of admission at many of the different venues that they attend. For example, uh, there are many people who don't blink an eye at spending thousands and thousands of dollars on season tickets to their favorite team. Others are quick to spend hundreds of dollars to see their favorite band. And and how about the money we spend at movie theaters and, and amusement parks? Uh, According to one study, the average American spends almost $3,000 a year just on entertainment. And listen, these places, uh, they won't let you in the door until you pay the price of admission. They won't let you step inside their venue until you've given them the money that they require of you. Now in light of this, I want to consider again what Paul wrote there at the beginning of verse 12, because there he declares, if others are partakers of this right over you, Are we not even more? In other words, if you have no problem giving your money to the NFL or the NBA, then you ought to also be thrilled to financially support those who are sowing spiritual truths into your life. If you see no problem with supporting your favorite artists by paying the price of admission at movies and concerts then you should also understand the importance of supporting the staff of your church with generous financial offerings. Now, unlike the secular venues that I just mentioned, no one's required to give money here at CSA. We don't have uh, a box office there in the front of the building, and you have to buy a ticket to get in, right? So the unbeliever who says, oh, you give money at church, that's ridiculous. Well, look, you can come in for free and give no money here. We don't require anyone to give money like the secular venues. They require you to give money before you can go and partake uh, of whatever they're selling. It's free here. You don't have to give any money here. There is no price of admission. And as you already know, uh, we here at this church, we never pass a plate around the room. We never uh, make anybody feel obligated to give an offering here at this church. And there's missionaries that contact me all the time saying, can I I come in, present what I'm doing, and beg your people for for more money? And I tell them, I don't ask the people at my church for money. I'm certainly not going to let you come in and ask the people at my church for money. This is a no-ask-for-money zone. Let, Let the Lord lead people to give as they will. At the same time, it's important to understand that we here at Calvary South Austin, we have rent to pay every month. We have an electric bill that's due every month. We have cleaning products to purchase. We have children's ministry curriculum to finance. Uh, We have uh, all these things that that we have to to purchase in, in order to make this church run in the way that it's supposed to. Now, the Lord has a perfect plan, and this is great news for all of us. The Lord has a perfect plan to provide us with all of the finances that we need for all of these bills. And yet, at the same time, it's important to understand that this perfect plan of provision includes your bank account and your desire to give in support of the ministry. His perfect plan of provision here at Calvary South Austin includes the offerings that you give here at this church. And listen, not only do your financial offerings pay the rent and the monthly bills, but your offerings also pay the salaries of the staff. You might not know this, but I spend time every day studying and and praying in preparation for the studies that I teach here on Wednesdays, and on Sundays, somebody was asking me the other day how much time I spend studying, and it'll blow your mind to, to actually know how many hours every day I spend time studying. and That's not including, you know, hospital visits and you know meetings with people, and but just the time studying alone, it's many, many hours every single day. When you give your financial offerings here at Calvary South Austin, you're financially enabling me to spend that time prayerfully. Preparing the messages that give you inspiration, conviction, and direction for your life. And according to Paul, this is exactly how it's supposed to be. This is exactly how it's supposed to work. At the same time, though, I should also point out that he himself did not claim this right for himself. And one reason why is based on the fact that he didn't want to hinder the gospel during those days when the church was just getting up on its feet. He didn't want to hinder the gospel uh, you know, during those days when he was planting that church there in Corinth. But then after the church had been planted, and after a structure of leadership was put in place, Paul then directed every disciple there at the church in Corinth to financially support those who had been called to shepherd the flock. And in order to be perfectly clear about this command, Paul pointed his audience to an Old Testament example. And with this in mind, if you would look with me there at verse 13. There in 1 Corinthians 9.13, Paul declares, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's pointing to the support that the Old Testament priests received from the rest of the people there in Israel. And he reminded them about the way in which the spiritual leaders of Israel received everything that they needed to live through the sacrifices which were being offered there at the temple in Jerusalem. They would get a portion of what was being offered to the Lord there at the temple. And in similar fashion, the Lord has commanded every Christian to financially support those who have been called to serve in full-time ministry. At the same time, though, it's important for every person in full-time ministry to make sure that we aren't attempting to fleece the flock of God because we've become greedy for gain. And in order to explain what I mean by this, if you would look with me here beginning at verse 15, here Paul declares, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, For necessity is laid upon me, yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping his audience to understand that he decided to preach the gospel there in Corinth without taking an offering and not even once. He didn't take an offering at all. And in this way, he's letting his critics know that you you can criticize my my authority, You you can question my apostolic authority, but look at my track record. Examine my track record and you can see. It was clear from his life that he was above reproach. And it was clear from his example that he had the apostolic authority that he claimed to have. One reason he wanted to preach the gospel there in Corinth without taking up any money was due to the fact that he wanted to avoid the appearance of preaching the gospel for for the money. He didn't want anyone walking away thinking that, well, Paul's in it for the money. The apostle to the Gentiles, one of the first Christians there in Corinth to understand that the gracious gift of forgiveness is freely given to those who will simply trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't want anyone to think for one second that you can pay for this grace. Now, it's true that Paul could have abused his apostolic authority by commanding every Christian convert to to give him some of their cash, but he didn't. No, instead he presented the gospel of Christ without charge, so that no one could accuse him of making merchandise out of the new believers there in Corinth. And in similar fashion, listen, the Lord has given me strong convictions about the way we handle finances here at Calvary South Austin. In order to explain what I'm talking about, I'd like you to hold your place here in the book of 1 Corinthians and and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. As you make your way to 1 Peter 5, I want to take a moment to, to mention again that we don't pass a plate. We don't take up an official offering here at our church. Instead, we simply have a collection container. It's in the back of the room for those who want to support the ministry. And uh, we just point people to it. And if you want to give, that, that's the way you do that. One reason for this is due to the fact that I never want anyone to feel pressured to give here at Calvary South Austin. I, I don't want anyone to feel the pressure, the, to, to feel obligated, that, that I actually put pressure on someone to give. That, that would break my heart to think that someone showed up to this church just, just wanting to hear the truth of God's word and they walked away feeling like they were just pressured the whole time to give money. And it's sad to say that there's a lot of churches like that where there's just a constant sales pitch, a constant building program, a, a constant give, give, give. May that never be true of this church. And while I realize that there are many pastors who have no problem constantly pressuring their people to give more, I can't do that, and I won't do that. You see, I want to be above reproach. I don't want anyone to walk away from a service here at this church thinking that, yeah, that bungee, he's just in it for the money. Not only that, but but listen, I'll let you know, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, I have no clue who gives what here at Calvary South Austin. I have no clue who gives what. I thank the Lord that we have a group of dedicated servants who process the weekly offerings. Because really, I don't want to know. I don't want to have a clue what you give. And for two main reasons. First of all, if I know what you give, then then my flesh is going to put a little dollar sign above your head as I talk to you. And, oh, this person gives a lot, so I'll give them a lot of my attention. Oh, this person doesn't give so much, so got to go. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to let my flesh go there. And so I just don't want to know. don't want to know who gives what because I want to love you all equally. I want to look at you all the same. So that's the first reason. I, I don't want to be tempted to treat people differently here based on what they give. So I don't look at who gives what. Secondly, I realized that there are some people with money who think that they can use their wealth as a way to control the decisions and the directions that the leaders make at church. This reminds me of something that happened about nine years ago. It was shortly after I took over as the pastor of this church. There was one wealthy couple who sat me down in an attempt to manipulate a decision that I was making. And one way that, that they did this was to threaten to remove their financial support from this church. The husband assured me that, that well, I, I know, Bungie, you don't know how much I give, but let me assure you, it's a lot. And I just said, let me stop you right there, because you must think that you're talking to another pastor. And I just told them that, you know, I, I'm making my decision based on the leading of the Lord. I, I receive my marching orders from the Lord not from those who want to manipulate my decisions because they want to put some pressure on me with their finances. Needless to say, they left the church and they took their money with them, but the Lord sustained us and provided everything that we needed to accomplish his calling. The Lord's never allowed us to to do without. The Lord has always provided everything that we've needed. And so they thought that that they were engaging in some sort of power play, and and I'm here to, to tell you, No one has that much power here on earth. The Lord is always going to provide as he guides. Christian, please trust me when I tell you that I'm not in it for the money. And the threats of those with money don't move me because I trust in a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has everything that I need. I'm not moved by the money and I'm not in it for the money. If I was well then I'd be preaching feel-good sermons that tickled itching ears every single Sunday. Every sun, single Sunday. It would be a spiritual pep rally and we, we would all leave you know, feeling this, this, this great high for, for about you know, 30 minutes until we get on I-35. But there was no substance to change my life to, to help me to deal with the issues. There was no conviction to bring me to a place of growth so, so that I would know how to deal with the issues of life. If I was in it, in it for the money, I would just be you know presenting a bunch of fluff, because uh, you know those are the churches that really grow fast and, and huge, because l- people love junk food. Clearly, I'm not in it for the money, because a lot of the studies that I teach are real bummers, and they're real convicting, and, and they're painful to, to sit through, and I know that. But that's what the Bible says is going to happen. The word of God was given to convince and rebuke and exhort. Think about it. The Bible is given to convince, to convince us that we're doing something wrong, is what that means. To rebuke, to tell us what we're doing wrong, then to exhort, to encourage us to do what's right. That's what every Bible Bible study should be like. A study that is convincing us that we wrong, rebuking us that we're wrong and exhorting us to do what's right. And you know what? A lot of those Bible studies don't feel good, especially when they pierce to the heart. So if I was in it for the money, I, would be, I wouldn't be preaching any of those kinds of studies because those are the kinds of studies that chase people away. As a matter of fact, there was a church that recently opened up you know, a couple of years ago over there in West Austin and they sent out a, a, a flyer and on, on that flyer announcing the church, it said, No convicting sermons. And it's one of the fastest growing churches in Austin, Texas. How sad is that? I'm not in it for the money. No, I'm in it so that I can preach the full counsel of God with the same conviction that Paul had when he declared, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me. If I do not preach the gospel, please understand that I'd rather have the eternal reward of everlasting riches than the finite finances that come from dishonest gain. In order to help you to understand my passion for preaching the word in this way, if you would look with me there at 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to begin reading at verse 1 because here Peter writes, The elders who are among you I exhort. Now the word elders here is interchangeable with senior pastor. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Note this. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples To the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Here in these verses, we find the Apostle Peter encouraging every senior pastor to set aside their greedy desire for gain and instead to eagerly accomplish our calling in Christ. And so while the church has been called to financially support the pastor, it's also true that the pastor should be a man who is serving with the right heart and not with a dishonest desire for worldly wealth. Without debate, this was the example that Paul demonstrated to the disciples at the church in Corinth. And as he pointed to his track record, he's saying, look, look at my track record. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've denied. Look at the liberties that I've set aside, now tell me I'm not the apostle to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, if you would, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I I want to pick up our study beginning there at verse 19, because here Paul goes on to declare, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the critics there in Corinth to understand that he was an apostle who was much less interested in making money off of new Christian converts And he was much more interested in leading people into the grace of God by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while it's true that he was an apostle with all of the liberties that the other apostles had, he was also a disciple who was solely dedicated to spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. He was completely committed to the great commission of the Lord. It was with this goal that Paul set out to meet every person right where they were at. And one reason why it was based on the fact that the Lord Jesus met him right where he was at on that road to Damascus. You know, he was headed to Damascus to go and persecute Christians. And that's when the Lord met him, right where he was at. And it's sad to say that too many people think that they've got to clean themselves up, they've got to kind of you know get rid of some of the sin before they can come to Christ, but that's not the case at all. The Lord meets us right where we're at. Whether we're on the road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians or whether we're on the way to church to go play like we're a Christian. The Lord meets us right where we're at. The Lord Jesus met me right where I was at. I was high and strung out when the Lord came and ministered to my heart. He met me right where I was at, even as a selfish drug addict. The Lord, Christian, met you right where you were at when he led you to himself. And now we, like Paul, we should reflect the Lord's love by ministering to every unbeliever right where they are at. We shouldn't make unbelievers feel like they've got to fix something about their life before they can come to Christ. We need to let them know that the Lord wants to meet them right where they are. Now, as we consider everything that we've seen here in this chapter, it seems apparent to me that Paul was a Christian who wanted to set the record straight. He, he wanted to help his critics to understand that all of their slanderous lies were just false accusations. He wanted them to understand that they were making false accusations, which really didn't line up with the facts. And yet at the same time, he was also a disciple who was just dedicated to accomplishing his own calling in Christ. And, and so he's going to set the record straight, but you know what? Paul then turns around and says, now I'm going to get back to what I'm called to do. And he encouraged every Christian to do the same. With this in mind, let's examine the final verses of this chapter. If you would, look with me here at 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 24. There Paul asks his audience, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Paul, he's describing his dedication to being a disciple who was running the race that was set before him. He wasn't looking at someone else's lane. He wasn't looking at someone else's race. He was running the race that the Lord set before him. And rather than fighting a pointless battle, as if he were shadow boxing or punching in the air, he he didn't want to fight for no reason. And he didn't want to fight with those who were attempting to discredit his ministry. He saw this as nothing more than a pointless battle. So Paul disciplined himself so that he might not be disqualified from his position of apostle. And he refocused himself by looking back at the lane that the Lord has placed him in so that he can get back to his own race. And in this way, he was also encouraging every Christian to follow in his footsteps by focusing on the lane that the Lord has placed us in. The Lord has given you a race to run. The Lord has given you a ministry to accomplish. Quit worrying about what someone else is doing in their lane. Quit worrying about what some other Christian is doing as they're running their race. Quit concerning yourself with with everybody else's opinions and everybody else's critiques. And you know what? There's going to be be people that come to you and and want to complain about the leaders of this church. and want to critique what's going on over there. Quit worrying about it. Focus on your race. Focus back on the lane that the Lord has placed you in. You see, it's always easier for divisive disciples to divide and destroy. It's hard work to build up and edify. And so, Christian critics, you know, they they want to spend their time dividing, destroying. And it's sad to say that there's too many Christians like 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 Paul's critics there in Corinth who want to rise in the ranks of their own authority by slandering solid leaders like Paul. They didn't have any real arguments against Paul. They they couldn't point to to a real issue that Paul had. They, They just didn't like his leadership. They didn't like his authority. They wanted his position. And the quickest way to go about it was just to slander him with false accusations, to discredit him so that they could dismantle the structure that he established. But Paul just set the record straight, said, here's the facts, look at my track record, and now I'm going to get back to what I was doing. And that's how we ought to be. When people come to us with their criticisms and they want to slander leaders that we know are serving the Lord, just set the record straight and get back to what the Lord has called you to do rather than getting caught up into the divisions of those who want to complain about christian leaders i would encourage you to run the race that the lord has set before you one of the best ways that we can do this is just to forget those things that are behind us and press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of god which is in christ jesus let's pray